News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer and Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan, Brooklyn, respectively. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and in a little bit, we're going to be hearing from Karen Hinton, who is the uh, author of Penis Politics, a memoir of her political life and a book that touches on her time working for both then-secretary Andrew Cuomo and then-mayor Bill de Blasio. But before we get to that, it's actually been a big day for women. Uh, Adrian Adams was formally voted in as the new city council speaker of New York. Uh, you can hear her in last week's episode, an in-depth conversation with us. Uh, literally the same time the Kathy Hochul uh, was delivering her first state of the state speech, which is coming just before primary in June and, you know, in the midst of uh, an election, she tries to get a whole term of her own. Eric Adams has been saying crazy things that have been drawing lots of attention. He went from, uh, don't question me until you've been a cop for 22 years to, uh, uh, you know, we have to do something about all, you know, the working class people who just aren't, aren't good for anything. If the uh, office people aren't there to trickle down upon them and, uh, cynical people, I think on the left who, who have been looking to dunk on him as he has been looking to dunk on them, uh, you know, immediately step forward, including AOC to say, what's with this guy? Why are you being such a jerk? He then had to tweet. You know what? I've been a cook. I've been a dishwasher. I know what this is like. That's not what I was trying to say. It clearly was not, but it is what he in fact said. So he's in the mix, in midst of it. Uh, he will need both Adrian Adams and very much uh, Kathy Hochul uh, to uh, make the most of this first year. And while he's got leverage over Albany, it's going to be uh, super interesting. Uh, Chrissy, what did you think of uh, the state of the state after hearing this Hochul? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it's a it's a record-setting day with so many women, you know, Adrienne Adams coming in, as you said before. Obviously, we've got a majority female city council. I thought it was interesting that Kathy Hochul started off wearing her suffrage suffragette white. Um, and then out the gate, she said, you know, women must not only meet expectations, but they have to exceed expectations. I thought that was somewhat of a little bit of a jab uh, to maybe her predecessor, who, you know, some people argued was largely there due to nepotism or whatever reasons. Um, the the tenor of the speech, you know, I thought she covered, obviously, lots of bases, coronavirus. She name-checked Eric, Adam, Eric Adams when she was talking about uh, getting violence under control. I thought, I'm really interested to hear about this construction and infrastructure and this new Interborough Express. Uh, she mentioned it briefly, but I think that that has real-world implications for not just jobs uh, in Brooklyn and Queens, but also the composition of communities. You know, I, I don't know, have they done environmental impact studies? Like, will we need to move people out to make sure this happens? Like, I just needed a little more detail. Well, she, she said specifically in, in, in so, so outside, the speech was very brief as these go. It was like 35 minutes, uh, which, is, which is super short for these. And in it, she said this Interborough Express that will connect Brooklyn and Queens and would be like a dedicated pathway. But she said, maybe it's a bus pathway. Maybe it's a light rail pathway. Maybe it's a heavy rail pathway. And what she was announcing, in effect, was that, that, that they were going to figure this out and go right into an environmental review. So that this isn't just a hypothetical okay. thing. But, but uh, you know, there, there are many, many more unknowns. There, there's sort of a, a name yeah, in like general It's like a couple path. years out. Yeah. And also, but she did seem transportation focused, just not super specific. The only thing she did seem specific about was the Second Avenue subway reaching East Harlem, uh, the Second Avenue <laughs> subway that's like the forever project. Oh my of God! New York. It's literally like seventy years, and God knows how many billions of dollars. Because every time they find an old school bobby pin, they've got to stop. I mean, I wish we would look at other major international cities who have done, you know, the Transmillennial in Bogota. I mean, I don't understand why we are spending so much money to do something that, you know, other major cities internationally have have done faster and cheaper. I am interested also, um, just before we pull in Alex and what you heard, um, this jails to jobs program, uh, especially because prisons are such an economic engine for upstate communities in New York. Um, and, you know, Cuomo was a teeny bit mealy-mouthed on, on some of the prison stuff. Uh, I'm curious to see 
uh, how this will be implemented um, because also jails are not prisons. So was she using shorthand jails for prisons or was she just talking about jails? I'm not exactly sure. And I, I want to know a little bit more. And who's in charge of that? You know, what type of person uh, or people or committee she's putting in charge of making sure that there's an economic uh, engine that goes behind uh, our returning citizens. And weirdly, when she brought that up briefly in the speech, she did not mention that that was part of the uh, Clean Slate Act uh, that she says she's aiming to pass. Mm -hmm. So that detail, again, is in the state of the state book she put out, but was totally absent in the speech where it was just sort of sort of expressed and then and then left there like, well, well what exactly is this and how's it going to work and who's going to make it work? Alex, what stood out for you? Um, well, I, it's weird. I was talking to you a little bit before we started recording about this, about how I feel really jaded because there are so many things to be excited about, um, you know, propping up small businesses. As we know, like 80 St. Mark's Place, home of the American Gangster Museum, a theater, a bar, like a neighborhood staple is <clears throat> uh, in peril right now. And they're looking to appeal to Kathy Hogel for one of these like loans to, you know, stay their demise um, and not be auctioned off as a property. So when she speaks to that, it should be hopeful. When she talks about covering um, educational expenses for healthcare workers and making New York, like building up New York's uh, healthcare industry in a way that isn't predatory. And when you read through a lot of the things, it's not necessarily predatory. And I, I want to be hopeful about those things. But then more and more, when I look at, at stuff, it's all overshadowed by a jaded sense that as New Yorkers, we've seen too much, too much like corruption, too many ways in which uh, corporations can kind of come in, scoop out the Medicaid money, scoop out the um, Department of Education money and just kind of ravage and leave our services hollow. Um, you know, when when I read something about more mental health care workers in pediatric medicine, I think is this a new place where overprescription is going to happen, where pharmaceutical companies are going to court school doctors now? Like just little, these little thoughts always kind of get to me. But I did find the speech, you know, incredibly hopeful. And I do think jails was a shorthand for prisons, her being an upstater. Uh, and uh, I think that like that was also, that was also pretty hopeful. Childcare. Um, I'm interested to see what that really looks like and how she intends to bolster that uh, in a way that's that's actually accessible. Um, as someone who's looking for daycare right now, I had no idea you had to be on a wait list for like two years. Otherwise, you could just pay $2,000 a week or something like that. And in brief, she's talking about an expansion of access to child care for about 100,000 New York families by increasing the eligibility point to something like 200 to 225% of the poverty line and 75 million in better pay for uh, uh, for childcare workers. Um, I mean, one of the things that just about the state of the state is so much gets done in, in the budget and then in the legislative season, and so much gets expressed in these speeches every year, they're almost dizzying, you know? So, so this one has something like a 10-page table of contents where, you know, just for example, in part 6A, uh, accelerate the renewable energy economy, it strengthened New York's offshore wind leadership, power one third of New York City with wind, solar and hydro, double energy storage deployment to at least six gigawatts, make New York a green hydrogen hub, phase out New York City's most uh, polluting fossil fuel facilities, achieve net zero in state investment portfolio by 2040 and create high quality solar jobs for more New Yorkers. Again, that's part 6A, pages 142 to 151, and it just keeps going. Um, and so th this is very serious stuff. There, there, there's uh, real money and real decisions at play. She, by the way, mentioned she wants to end the 421A program, uh, which has been a, a big tax op for developers, but is also where half of all the affordable housing that's been generated in the city, I believe, over the last decade has come from. And so, you know, you have the speech and then you have to find out where, 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 where the rubber actually hits the road and, and try to follow all those dollars, which, uh, which can be dizzying. I have a question for both of you guys. Um, the first question I have is, what did you guys think of, you know, Jacob with teeth, the Jacob with teeth plan uh, for Albany's accountability? Uh, and what 
what do you think she actually means by that? Um, and then the second one I wanted to get your, you know, with what Eric Adams said, you know, putting a hierarchy of, uh, of jobs, right? Like stepping stone jobs, he called low skill jobs and more put like a price tag on the jobs that are in offices. Cause those jobs support restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she then says that she wants to start turning hotels and office buildings that are now empty into housing. So I wanted to see what you guys thought about those two, those two yeah. things. Well, I'm going to leave the Jacob piece to, to Harry because I, I think just so much of this speech uh, was pretty vague. I mean, most New Yorkers are not going to read this some, you know, close to 200 page follow-up. But what I think is an important question in the backdrop of your question, Alex, is Kathy Hochul came to us today as governor, but she's also signaling to a lot of people, she's also candidate Hochul. Um, And so I thought that there was enough in there to kind of sprinkle enough vague policy proposals for a lot of people's ears to perk up. So I think there are a lot of people who are concerned about vacancies just throughout the city that we've seen. So saying that you're going to transfer office buildings into housing. So that's like another buzzword, housing. But how, you know, as you all just said, how the rubber hits the road, how this is actually implemented. So are we going to have lower or middle or high-end housing, you know, in the middle of Midtown with, you know, are we changing zoning laws? How is this getting done? How is it implemented? Today wasn't the space to do it. And I don't know if there is going to be significant follow-up because she gave so many breadcrumbs today I think people will follow up on particular issues and not necessarily many of the items that she mentioned and many of the items that are buried in this massively long report. Jacob, the ethics board that Cuomo created, controlled. Uh, This is a joke. It has been widely seen as a joke. And part of what she has to do is Cuomo's former lieutenant governor, who he kept at arm's length, is turn the page. And so saying, I'm getting rid of this universally mocked and reviled board is is sort of like the lowest hanging fruit and the, the easiest thing, like the least she needs to do. Uh, her proposal, which is 219 pages in here, you know, is very is general. It's replaced Jacob with an effective watchdog, and five members made up from the uh, 15 state accredited law schools, their deans or people their deans designate. So that seems clean and very hands off. Uh, but but rubber road devil details. You know, uh, we'll see if this happens and how exactly it's implemented, if so. She's also proposing term limits, not for the legislature, which strongly doesn't want them, uh, but for the uh, statewide offices. So so herself and the uh, controller and the attorney general, which, again, is a way of distinguishing herself from Cuomo. I'm, I'm honestly not sure how I feel about that, but uh, it, it's it's an interesting move. And the political idea is clear. Um Chrissy, because we're going to have Karen Hinton, who's going to be talking about de Blasio and Cuomo and how they related and the impact that had on New York, Adams and Hochul are clearly trying to set a very different tone. Um, Adams has the upper hand in certain ways at the moment. Uh, She's running for election to a full term. He's won election. Um, You know, he's settling in and working out where he wants to be rhetorically and otherwise. What do you think he has or should be expressing that he wants to get uh, that he'd like to get for New York City out of Albany this year while he has that leverage. Yeah, I mean, I think he's in the catbird seat right now because she is candidate Hochul, and we know that the road to the governor's mansion comes directly through the five boroughs and largely through Brooklyn in a lot of ways. Um, and obviously, since one of her opponents is from Brooklyn, um, she's relying on Eric Adams as former Brooklyn borough president to try and siphon off some of the Jumani base in Brooklyn as well. Um, and, and think about, you know, the coalitions he put together in Queens and Staten Island and other places. I mean, I don't know if he's going to want greater control of schools. I don't know if he's going to just say, hey, I need you to start writing some blank checks because she's at a point right now where she wants to. Like she might, she wants to stay as governor. It seems as though she's enjoying the job and trying to do her best. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, she still talked about her grandparents and, you know, her parents' origin story. That felt a lot like a campaign in the sense that she's still trying to introduce herself to uh, New York residents in a lot of ways. And so economically, um, you know, right now, Eric Adams' big initiatives are policing and safety. And obviously COVID 
uh, and to dealing with schools and COVID. So I would say anything surrounding his agenda that has to do with money, that is what he's going to ask for, right? Because even if he doesn't need the money right now, it's like, well, let me pocket the money until times get rough. Um, you'll never, you know, like when you're negotiating for a job or you're negotiating when you get into school and you want scholarship money or whatever it is, it's like, this is the time to ask for everything. Because at a certain point in time, once Kathy Hochul wins, um, she won't need Eric Adams in the same way. And she might not be as generous um, for some of his requests. Uh, and so it's a symbiotic relationship in the sense that he wants to succeed in his first few months as, as mayor. She wants to get past this June primary and and not just like uh, crawl across the finish line, but I think she does want to sort of have a definitive mandate. Like I'm the incumbent, you know, and I got X percent of the vote, you know, 65% of the vote, whatever it may be, you know, where essentially I told Jumani Williams and Tom Swazi to sit down and nobody's interested. Bill de Blasio too. I mean, I think there's going to be a gender component to it all. And so I, I think she definitely thinks that Eric Adams is someone who can help her do that, especially with African-American voters who don't really know her. Um, and Brian Benjamin, you know, had a, a base in Harlem, but, you know, a lot of folks don't know Brian Benjamin either. Uh, it would be Eric Adams who pulls out sort of those diehard Black voters uh, who vote always in, in a general, but, you know, could pull them out for Kathy Hochul in a primary, and especially away from uh, Jamani Williams, who's a much more progressive candidate, which is not uh, typically where the, the mean African-American voter uh, lies. So... As always, as I tell my students on the first day of Intro to Politics, the answer is always money. <laughs> if you're if you're ever questioning, the, the answer is money. Wouldn't it be That's funny if Kathy Hochul started referring to herself in the third person as well? Like, it just seems like anyone in Eric Adams' orbit kind of starts doing that a little bit. Um, well, did, well, Adrienne Adams did it when she came on the podcast last yeah. week. And I, I hate to say it, but I feel like I found myself doing it once or twice this week. Right, like... I'm, you know, well, Alex you know what, Lynn, Alex Lynn appreciates. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Someone pointed this out on Twitter and they were very uncomfortable by it. And I want to get your opinions. Someone said when he was giving the, the speech about uh, low wage workers, um, he says, you know, like my sanitation workers, my cooks, my chefs, my my people who work at Dunkin Donuts. And they said, you know, feels authoritarian. I thought it was interesting. I didn't actually feel that way. I thought it actually endears himself to people because he's essentially saying like, I am with you. So we are together by, by me saying my cooks, it's like, I'm, I'm with the cooks. Like I might be the leader of the cooks, but I'm, I'm in very the trenches. Tammany. It's very Tammany. Yeah. I, mm. My people, my streets, my yeah. work, we're all in this together. We walk in the same mud. We walk it's, in the same yeah. gutter. Like it's very church. It's, it's very, my flock, my sheep. He's got a few different uh, figures of speech involving sheep. He, he likes to use, um, but he doesn't get a, give off pastor vibe at all. No, no, he does not. It's I, I feel like it's a little bit more of what Alex said. It's like it feels a little bit more like union boss esque, old school union boss esque. The, the recent sheep one was he, he was talking about taking the trains and riding city bike around, which is very distinct from how Bill de Blasio handled himself. You know, getting sort of taken from bubble to bubble in his SUV. And he said, Adams, you can't be a good shepherd if you are not among the sheep. Um, which is, is a line I liked and flashing back to an earlier one, I, I thought was a little wild uh, during the uh, campaign when he was part of a forum with other candidates for high school students, where the high school students asking the questions. And as his time there was coming to an end, he stopped to give some advice to them, which was the only candidate thoughtful enough to do. And I did think was thoughtful, but the advice, which apparently involves from Game of Thrones is all of you are lions, he told the high schoolers, and lions don't care about the opinions of sheep. <laughs> I mean, I oh my. that was, you know, the year that will be remembered of the great Zoom, the great many, 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 many Zoom forum debates, uh, of uh, which we perpetuated a few. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, but doesn't he have a similar rhetorical line where he says, you know, when he's clubbing, you know, and he went out clubbing the night that he was sworn in, but even during the campaign season, you know, I, I party with the the boys at night, but I get up with the men in the morning um, to justify, you know, his, his nighttime, you know, you got to sample the product. It's New York city. You got to be <laughs> out there, which is interesting because Alex, we cheated on you just a little bit today. And we were uh, on Ben Max's podcast with Sally Goldenberg, who's also a friend of the podcast. Um, and we were talking about though, the, the tangible 
qualities that Eric Adams wants to have, you know, walking the streets, biking, sort of having that nitty gritty, seeing a fight, seeing NYPD not being effective and answering the call. Um, you know, Bill de Blasio in a lot of ways was kind of like that Robert Moses, you're in your car all the time. Can you see anything if you're being driven and you're not on the streets, you know, on the subways, uh, really intermingling shoulder to shoulder with New Yorkers? But a Robert Moses who didn't build a damn thing. <laughs> well, I don't know. He's cut through a few communities. He didn't. He didn't lift a shovel. But I don't know that that Bronx Expressway damaged quite a bit. Oh no, I meant the Blasio, not not oh. Moses. For the oh, okay. I was, about to say, I was like, eh, I feel like Robert <laughs> Moses did quite a bit in this city, for better or for worse. But I mean, you know, I, what I'm saying is, I just feel like Eric Adams, as of now, right? Because people change. It feels like he wants to be in the pulse, like almost like a beat cop. Um, he wants to kind of know neighborhood by neighborhood, like what's going down. First of all, I, I have known that Ben Max is the, um, is the, you know, the, your guy's side piece for quite some time. <laughs> um, so it's not a surprise. <laughs> uh, and, um, but also, yeah, I mean, Eric Adams, Eric, Ad- this is what Eric Adams and, and Sliwa had in common, right? They want to be, in it like eric adams wasn't going to go so far as to make up an old lady he saved from a mugging but they want to be in it they want to be walking down the street seeing the fight going over and to some weird extent cuomo did too but cuomo was too much de blasio and too much as you put it chris he raised in captivity he (laughs) so he would like drive to the big accident where the truck turned over and like go put one foot on it and help someone out in an extremely curated way. Um, But Eric Adams kind of in that sense seems like the real deal. Now in other senses, things that he's doing are very real deal stuff. They're just not necessarily stuff that's, I mean, again, rubber meets the road, but there's stuff as to be seen his involvement with the correctional officers union, you know, he's doing them a lot of favors right now. So, I mean, I'm not, saying he's doing them a lot of favors. I'm just saying the policies he's instituting is pretty kind. And uh, what's going to happen with Rikers is yet to be seen, but it's not, it's not exactly the progressive policy or rhetoric without follow-up that we're used to from de Blasio. So let's put a pin there for looking forward because there's going to be an awful lot to track uh, with the jails and with Rikers and with Mayor Eric Adams. Uh, and now let's take just a minute to uh, look back and let's bring in Karen Hinton to talk about her memoir, Penis Politics, Andrew Cuomo, Bill de Blasio, and much more. Let's jump right in. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Karen Hinton. Karen, let's start with the... Uh, author's note in this case at the very back of your book, and then then we'll go to the front. And I'm hoping you can explain what happened in your life that that led you to this political memoir, the rare one that's actually a memoir and and not not, not just a dressed up uh, political book. And then how this ended up emerging into the world in the midst of big news events for some of the the people you've worked for and who uh, you write about in the book. Let me start with the title of the book first to set the scene. It's called Penis Politics. And I know that some people may find that title shocking, but Penis Politics is about conduct that's much more shocking than the official name of a body part. It's about discrimination, harassment, abuse, and misogyny. And I wanted to come up with a shocking name about something women struggle with and live with from sm- what I call, quote unquote, small everyday abuses to uh, harassment, to abuses that um, also involve violence and then rape. And in the midst of all of this thought that I'm having about sexual harassment and abuse, uh, of course, the Me Too movement began to really take speed in the American society in 2017. And I was I was working with the, the group that ended up being uh, the Me Too movement. And I was really, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about this issue, 
when I'm working out at the gym in April of 2017 and I have an accident and fall off of a treadmill. And to this day, I don't know why I fell off the treadmill. I uh, don't have any memory of the day um, or for the next two months. I can't remember anything because I basically flattened my head on, on a hard floor, concrete floor of the gym in Mount Kisco. And it causes a severe traumatic brain injury. That's the official title. And as a result of that happening to me, and then really another two and a half years of recovery in a serious way, um, I begin to think a lot more about this topic because I was trying to recapture my memories of the past because I had lost a lot of memory. And I also had lost an ability to speak properly and read any length of time and write. So I needed a way to recover from that because I thought, well, I'm going to lose my ability to work. And I still struggle with many of those issues, but I've come a long way in the four and a half years since it happened. Um, so, but in that process, I remember things that happened, not when I was in my 30s or my 20s or my 40s, but when I was a teenager in um, a little town called Soso, Mississippi. Um, and a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, is sexually abused, raped by a school official. And she wants me, as well as other close friends, to not tell anyone about it. It's a secret, a big secret. And she gets us to swear that we would never share her story with anyone. And we didn't. And she had to live with it for the rest of her life. And of course, you have to read the book to find out what happened in, in all of that. But that's what led me to write the book. And I do think that if I hadn't had the accident, I wouldn't have written the book. I would have just kept on working and being involved in New York politics. Um, and the, but the accident changed my life. And I think writing the book, Penis Politics, has changed my life. So, so the first third of the book, roughly, is entirely in Mississippi, and I would say at that point it, it's uh, it's it's all penis and and no politics in the broader sense. Uh, but but you 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 have this friend, and without revealing things, people should read to find out mm -hmm. uh, a circle of of close friends. This this coterie of, of young right. women who are athletes. Um, you know, and are just coming into their own as, as people like um, intellectually, spiritually, uh, right. personally, sexually. And, and then there, there's a, a coach who, who ends up uh, uh, abusing, raping your, your, your friend who right. has all sorts of ambivalent feelings about it, doesn't want you all to tell anyone. You finally confront the coach. Basically, to get out of a, uh, to get out of a class so, so that you've kept your promise, but you know, you feel like you're getting something out of it as you're all trying to process this as young right. teens. Right. It was, it was our only way. This is 19. Remember this is 1974 and we never talked about rape in a classroom. Like what do you do if you are ever sexually abused or raped? We never talked about it. Um, the only time it ever came up is if a black man had been um, allegedly accused of raping a white woman, then it was talked about, but never under any other circumstances and certainly not in a classroom. So we didn't really know what to do with all this information. So we came up with this idea of, okay, we need more time uh, out of our typing class because why do we have to take typing, number one? And number two, why do we have to take two years of it when the boys only have to take one year? And we concluded from that, well, this is what 
they think we'll be doing for the rest of our lives is typing. <laughs> so we need to really know how to type. But after a year, we figured it out. And so we didn't want to go back to class or at least as much. So we convinced the, um, the school official. He had been a coach and then he becomes a school official who oversees all of the athletic program. He's not our coach in that sense, but he um, takes advantage of, of Janice, this, this close friend of mine. And we then confront him and say, well, we want uh, to skip class once or twice a week. And we want passes to do that <laughs> so that we don't get in trouble with the teacher and just tell her that we have important things to do around the school. And so that's what we did, but it's a real uh, story, I think, anyway, of how women um, try to figure out how to handle those situations and at least um, have some sense of control. We had none, but we thought we had a little just by skipping typing class. And at this point, really, we're talking about girls, not yet women, right. and, and, and a rape involving a, a grown man, you know, sort of, sort of pressing themselves on a, on a very young girl. I'm wondering if, if anyone in rural Mississippi at the time would have, would have thought about, would have thought of that up rape if any of you did at the time, or, or, or if that, that, that sort of with, with wisdom and hindsight, uh, as you were, as you were processing it and, and now looking back, you know, mm -hmm. what would happen? Well, we we did consider it um, the wrong thing to do. I don't know that we ever verbalized it as rape, but we knew it was the wrong thing to do. He was taking advantage of her and it's not what she wanted to do. Um, so that's the way we thought about it at the time, um, because, as I said, we never really talk about what it means to be raped and what consequences there are about uh, not just rape, but um, verbal abuse, um, harassing, flirting, all the sorts of things that now you see going on in the sports arena. Um, you know, we've had the stories about the soccer women's team and as well as the gymnasts. Uh, and I just think this has been part of a culture and it was allowed to happen for so long. And it's, And now suddenly there's more and more discussion about that happening and really confronting men who've been involved with that. Um, and so uh, that's sort of, you know, for me, it sets the scene for then what happens to me later in life, um, being in politics, not just in Mississippi, but also Washington, D.C., and then New York City. But the, um, the, the, the really uh, fascinating timing of the book is that I had finished the book by the time the women started speaking out about the sexual misconduct of the former governor, Andrew Cuomo. And I wasn't, had no sense of knowing that th that was going to happen, but I had finished the book and was moving on to get a publisher and do all that you do to get a book out. And, and then these, uh, uh, statements started coming out from from uh, a number of women, and it was the morning that I watched the CBS uh, newscast of um, Charlotte Bennett when she started talking about what happened to her, and I was so taken aback by what the gov former governor had said to her, how he acted around her, and especially in the case of the fact that she was a former she was a victim of sexual harassment herself, sexual abuse herself. And he knew that. And why he thought he could sit in his office with an employee her age, 25 years old, and say these things only reminded me of what I had come to realize and understand by the time I'm now 62 years old, <laughs> what had happened to Janice and to her friends, me and two girls named Maggie and Libby. Um, and then I realized the consequences of that behavior is not minor. 
And we tend to think that a you know slap on the ass is no big deal, but it is a big deal. And it usually happens um, of a, from a sense of a pattern that some things happen over time, over and over again. And that's what leads to this feeling, which Charlotte Bennett says, of wanting to disappear, which is what she does. So we're skipping ahead here a bit. I'm we're sorry. Gonna come back. No, don't be sorry. We're going to come back uh, to to Ole Miss, uh, to Colorado for a bit, and then Washington and in New right. York. But but moving moving ahead a little, you you worked in Washington uh, for Andrew Cuomo. You have your own experience with him that, that, that you write about in the book. It's not. It's actually it's sort of a smaller part of your your larger experience with Cuomo and over many years and uh, uh, at HUD. Um, can can you just uh, take our listeners through that, and, and then as these other women came out, uh, your, your your thoughts as you were processing that about the pattern and your own experience, and uh, and and what had happened. And I'll just add here that if, if I'm not messing up the sequence. By by the time you have this interaction with Cuomo, who, who you, you'd work for, and then were, were effectively contracting for as the Democratic Convention was coming up, uh, you'd already come out with with a story establishing a pattern um, to journalist Michael Isakoff about uh, Bill Clinton sort of showering you with with attention uh, at, a, at, a, at a steakhouse dinner with lots of people there, and you're being excited to have this potential future president really interested in your ideas only for him to, you know, slip you his, uh, a sheet of paper right. with his room number in, eh, eh. um, and, and then decided to publicly put that out there, which, which ends up playing a role in how, uh, your relationship with Cuomo proceeds, but, but prior to this encounter. So, so with that as backdrop, I'm hoping you can, you can explain what you went through and, and, and then as, as these other women came out, uh, how your experience, felt in relation to that pattern. Right. By the time I began working for Andrew Cuomo, when he was HUD secretary, uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, I had been working in politics <clears throat> on in Mississippi, as well as Capitol Hill. And I had experienced and, and watched so much sexual abuse and sexual misconduct <clears throat> on Capitol Hill as well as in Mississippi. And that's what you're referring to in terms of uh, Bill Clinton, because he was governor of Arkansas at the time. And when he started talking to me at a political event in Mississippi, I was just astounded that he was taking the time to talk to me and ask me questions about issues I cared about, poverty, racism, uh, low-income communities, um, illiteracy. And I... I was just amazed that he gave me all that time and then only to uh, find that he slips me a little note with his hotel, <laughs> the name of his hotel, a question mark and the room number. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, this is this is humiliating. I'm going to get the heck out of this bar because I don't want to have anything to do with this. And I left and never talked about it until 1998. Now that was in 1984 in Mississippi. So over a decade later um, in 1998 is when I do talk about it. So let me just back up a little from there because I start working for Cuomo in 1995. <clears throat> and by then I knew the deal and I knew how sometimes, not all politicians, but some, some of them um, use flirtation as a sort of device to um, attract a woman to the job, as well as then work 24-7, night and day, uh, giving up all family and friends to put their time and attention into work for him. And that was, that was exactly what Andrew Cuomo did when I was there. Um, he not only would sometimes flirt with me, but he would also do it with many other women who worked at HUD at the time. And some of them um, found it abusive and troubling and humiliating. Um, others, like me, just said, oh, let's be done with this. We want to be here. I wanted to be there badly because he was he was really the only cabinet member under Clinton 
that cared about poverty issues and cared about urban areas as well as rural areas about what was happening to low-income people. He was the only cabinet member. This was the time, you know, when Clinton was doing welfare reform and, um, and it was really of concern to people like me who didn't really see it as welfare needing to be reformed uh, in the sense of withdrawing uh, assistance and resources for people who really needed help to come out of poverty. Um, but Andrew did, and he really worked on that. And I tell stories in my book about um, how he took hold of projects in order to help very low-income people. He went to Mississippi Delta to uh, help build back African-American churches that had been burned down to the ground by whites. And this was happening across the South at the time, um, not just in Mississippi, but he focused on Mississippi. And maybe because I had been involved with Mississippi politics, but also because it was very rampant in Mississippi Delta at the time. And, but then he also ended up going to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which is the poorest Indian reservation in the country. And he put a lot of, of, of his energy into figuring out ways to help um, um, uh, American Indians uh, find proper housing on the reservation. So these were things that I cared about. And as a result, I sort of put up with a lot of his, um, what we later you know, describe as bullying and um, intimidation as well as flirting um, and sometimes even discriminating against women because in a way that is discriminating against them as well as harassing them. But I remember there was one woman who <clears throat> I had recruited to come interview for an intergovernmental affairs job. And she was very good at that because she had a, very, a high profile job on Capitol Hill and knew everybody. And I bring her in for the interview. I sit in on the interview and um, Andrew decides not to hire because she's not pretty enough. And I'm like, what's that got to do with it? He's like, yeah, but she's just not attractive. I'm not interested. And that was this sort of rotation of things like that that happened the entire five years I worked for him. And then <clears throat> um, when uh, the Monica Lewinsky case appears and uh, the, the president is, you know, uh, likely to be impeached and the cabinet of course is trying to uh, protect him and help him uh, bypass this um, what most people just passed off as the silliness of a young um, young woman who had a uh, was falling in love with the president and had a super crush on him and was uh, you know uh, sexually loose and um, as as James Carville and George Stephanopoulos, who worked for Clinton then, said they, they called her a bimbo. And then the women from Arkansas, who also made charges against the president, called them trailer park trash. And I just, as I said, wait a minute, this is wrong. This isn't the right way to approach this problem because I had seen it uh, with the president. And everybody knew in the Deep South that he was a womanizer and had been for a very long time. So I just decided to tell Michael Isakov about what happened to me. And that's what I did and uh, suffered from that decision. And at that point, uh, there is a deputy secretary position. You would otherwise be the right person for it. Cuomo effectively decides you can't you can't have that now, having having spoken out about his boss and the president. Um, a little after that, you you end up leaving, just sort of having enough of this exhaustive and altogether relationship. And then to jump ahead, you're I believe on the West Coast for for a bit. Um, mm -hmm. Cuomo is preparing for the Democratic convention and sort of ropes you back into his orbit as you're trying to, to build out your own business. And do you, you want to pick up from there? Sure. It, this actually happened after the convention. Um, I did help him uh, 
obtain media coverage when he was at the convention in Los Angeles. But there was a lot of attention on the on the West Coast. Um, and that was one of the reasons why he had hired me uh, was to try to build up media coverage for the, the Clinton-Gore administration prior to the convention and then after the convention. And this happens uh, when we um, have this large media event with the mayor of Los Angeles, Reardon, who was Republican at the time, not at the time, but was a Republican. And um, because we're trying to build up media coverage for Gore um, and Andrew wants to talk about what Gore did around affordable housing. And so I'm hired to help with that event. And I, um, and he and I had had a very difficult relationship when I left HUD because I was very angry with him about a lot of different things, some of which involved the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And the book can give you all the details about that. But we, we basically leave each other uh, screaming the F word. <laughs> and so, as you can tell from that, it was quite hostile. Um, but in that year since, um, he had tried to make up with me. And, um, and then I, I realized, you know, if Gore gets real, if Gore gets elected, I'm going to need Andrew Cuomo to help me with my own career, whether I'm in California or not. Um, because he is very close to Gore and and remains close to Gore today, or, or at least before he resigned. I don't know what their relationship is now. So um, uh, I knew that I would need at least to be uh, have a professional relationship that was positive with Cuomo. So when he asked me to do this um, media event, I did, and that evening, all of us who were working on the event stayed at the same hotel and he's there as well. And he calls me from my hotel room and says, why don't you come up and let's talk about the day and what we do tomorrow and just catch up because we haven't talked in a long time. And um, I said, okay. And I, it didn't dawn on me that there was anything strange about that because I'd been in hotels with him before hotel rooms with him before with others as well as alone and nothing had ever happened. Uh, so I just didn't think anything about it. And, but I went upstairs to his room and we, um, and the lights had been dimmed, which I found odd. <laughs> I thought, why, why, how can we work with dim lights? Um, but I went in anyway and sat down and we did talk about the day and we talked about, um, and about what we would do the next day. And then he started sort of bringing up his marriage. He wanted to know about my marriage, which was my first marriage. And at some point I just thought, okay, this is enough. I'm going to get up and leave because this is all weird. So I stood up and, and he approached me and gave me a, what is, I would call an, uh, uh, an erotic embrace. And I thought it was inappropriate. And I pulled away. He kind of pulls me back and he says, you know, we have to take care of each other and we haven't always done that. And will you take care of me and I'll take care of you. And I just, I just didn't know what all that meant. I didn't know what the embrace meant. And I just said, no, I have to go back to my room and go to sleep because I'm very tired and we have a lot to do tomorrow. And then we never talked about it after that. And given what all had happened with uh, Bill Clinton and the fact that I didn't get a job that I wanted and that he actually took another job away from me later on before Pine Ridge, um, that I just, you know, so, you know what, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to tell anybody. I told a best friend, a girlfriend who wasn't involved in politics, and I let it go. And because I just felt like I needed him. Of course, now Gore loses. <laughs> and I, we have eight years of, of George Bush, which um, no Democrat was happy about, obviously. Um, but I had to continue my career. So I did need him time and again. But really, the reason why I stayed connected to him was I ended up, my second marriage was with um, 
someone who would work for both Mario and Andrew. And that's the reason why I remained connected to him after that. So let's jump ahead here. 15 years about, um, I, I believe, uh, uh, Howard Glazer, your second husband right. has just left a, a stint as, as a, a right hand of sorts of, uh, of the governors and is back in the private sector. And you end up in New York city. Uh, I believe this actually when uh, I first met you, um, working for, uh, work, working for Bill de Blasio, uh, who, famously as his own complicated relationship with Andrew Cuomo, you end up, I think, right in the uh, crossfire, perhaps, of, of that relationship and, and, and taking fire, not, not only from your former boss, who, who, who sees this as some sort of betrayal and seems to think between your work for him and then your husband's that, that he has an ownership claim over you and that you've gone over to the enemy. Uh, right. but pretty quickly from from your new boss, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio as well. So I'm, I'm hoping you can you can talk a little about your experience over basically that year. Well, I, I want to try to keep my story short and I seem to be just rattling on. So I'll try my best not to go on and on about this situation. And, and let me just say very quickly that, that, that right. again, the book is, is Penis Politics. And this is an actual memoir. We're skipping over what, what, what to me is, is a lot of the uh, richest and most interesting material because this podcast is FAQ NYC. And right. I'm trying to, to, to get to some of the New York material. Uh, but but it, I really recommend re reading in full. It's, it's uh, just a, a, a different context on how somebody who spent their adult life in politics uh, with, with an interesting stint in journalism. We've also... Uh, jump past, um, you know, it's sort of understood and processed uh, their political relationships, uh, their own life and the world they came out of where, where the other women involved in this coterie, Janice in particular, end up having uh, very different lives. But with all that said, let's, let's uh, jump ahead to uh, Bill de Blasio, if you do not mind. Well, he's he's about to leave office. Um, so that's one reason to talk about my time at City Hall. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I had met Bill when he worked for HUD and um, Andrew was housing secretary. And I always enjoyed his company when he would come to. He was the administrative of the Northeast administrator for HUD. So New York, of course, was one of his areas and which he spent most of his time taking care of when Andrew was at HUD. Um, and, uh, and I always enjoyed his company and to listen to him, even with talking with Andrew at the time, because they talked about New York politics and I didn't know anything about New York. So it was great to just hear their stories that they told, um, about all the characters at that time, um, in New York politics, including Andrew's father, Mario. And so I always thought of them as friends and Andrew even worked very hard to convince Bill to come work for him. Um, so, uh, you know, it was it was something that he wanted to Bill do, and they were very close and good friends. So when I when when Bill asked me to work as his press secretary, and this was after my husband had left um, the governor's office um, for four, where he had worked for four years, um, I said. I asked Howard, I said, do you think I should do this? I said, Andrew will not be happy given that they have some kind of disagreements going on. And at the time, I didn't think it was as bad as it turned out. Um, and my husband said, it's your life. It's your decision. Um, will he be upset? Yeah, but he'll get over it. So move on. <laughs> go, do, go do what you want to do. You let me go work for him for four years. I'll let you go work for Bill. So that's what I did. And for a passing moment, Harry, I have to, I believe that I was uniquely positioned to bring peace to these two guys. Um, uh, and they're the two most powerful men in New York. So it was important that the both of them at least get along. Um, and that is not what happened. And by the time I got there, and things started to unravel with the governor calling me a traitor and disloyal and the uh, mayor deciding to uh, attack 
Andrew by calling, saying he's vindictive, which he is, <laughs> um, and has vendettas, which he has. Um, but, you know, this clashes, and I'm right in the center of it. And it is, even though it is not a large portion of my book, it's only like three chapters, um, things blew up in my face. And it was bad for me, but more importantly, it was downright dangerous for New Yorkers to be in this situation where these two men were coming at each other. And it is, in many ways, the perfect example of penis politics, just men behaving badly um, in politics, as well as in their relationships with women and in their relationships with some men. So there's much more in the book. Uh, there's also a, a small series of interesting bold-faced names. Uh, Bill Styron is there in a uh, depressing anecdote. Uh, James Carville, who, who uh, I, I did not know you dated, and, and you actually warned uh, sort of beforehand about, about Clinton. And in that, that political way, it's like, I, I prefer, I, I can't do his accent. Uh, it's distinctive. <laughs> <Nor can I. laughs> you know, I, I, I prefer not to know that. He, he effectively says, uh, says in response, uh, but I, I really appreciate you taking a half an hour to go through a bit of this. And, and I'm hoping you have sort of a, a, a closing word about, uh, about your arc and, uh, and about the book to share. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I, I, I love talking about the stories in the book. Um, and that's what I hope my readers will take from it because I want women to tell their own stories, to remember and think about what happened to them and then make decisions about how they handle it, um, what the consequences are and how they deal with them, whether it's in the long past or the short past, because I, I think that's very important for men and women to step up and be um embrace women who come out and talk about these kinds of issues. Now, they may file a claim, they may file a charge, and the investigation has to take its course. But once it does, then we need to believe in those women and believe what they said. Um, and that's why I decided to um, talk more earlier about what happened to me and the governor uh, because I think my truth from the past um, helps strengthen um, the 11 women's truth in the present. And because you do show this Patterson pattern, I'm sorry, this pattern. And um, I think that that's important for women to stand together. And I think it's very important for men to speak up on behalf of women and to tell men wherever they see sexual harassment to stop. It's not good for the company. It's not good for the setting. It's not good for women. It's not good for them because it puts all this tension and hatred and uh, complications in, in the air. And so I hope that penis politics will be a wake up call for both men and women to put an end to this kind of misconduct and abusive use of power. So, of course, when the book came out, the Cuomo people said you, you were telling this story about him to 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 sort of sort of promote off of his political troubles uh, in quotation marks. And, you know, as we were talking about this, this was happened well before and had been written before any of that had happened. And then then the world in some ways caught up to uh, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, closing question here is. Uh, from the places you, you've spent much of your life, so let's say Mississippi, Washington, D.C., uh, and New York, we'll, we'll leave out New Orleans. Uh, do, do you think that, that more progress has been made toward, toward uh, listening to women, um, shifting any of these norms, and creating accountability in one than in the other? Or do you think progress has, has been made at all, for that matter? I do think that the Me Too movement did help. Um, with the issue of sexual misconduct. And I do think that um, uh, it, it will not go away. I think it will be here to stay and there will continue to be discussions about it. Um, 
But what is important is that women stand with women on this issue. And that doesn't mean that you um, have to believe everything every woman says, um, but you have to believe that something happened. So the HR department, the boss, the uh, attorney general, the district attorneys, the police department, or just among a group of friends who decides to deal with this problem on a very personal level, um, you have to do something. And, and, and so instead of just passing it off as non-existent or a minor thing or a small thing, um, we have to say, no, this is a problem and we need to deal with this and stand up for those women who we find out to be, we know are telling the truth. And that's certainly the case with the 11 women who the attorney general investigated and found to be telling the truth. Karen Hinton, uh, thank you so much. Uh, the book is Penis Politics, and I hope we'll uh, talk again. Thank you very much for having me. I very much appreciate it. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest this week, Karen Hinton, author of Penis Politics, a memoir of women, men, and power. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be well, be safe, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>